Hey everyone, Jake here, and I'm replaying one of my favorite episodes from our series, which is Season 4, Episode 10, Bringing Learning Science to Life. And then in this episode, we're joined by Tessa Forshaw, and she's an expert in learning science who works in the Next Level Lab, which is within the Harvard Graduate School of Education. Personally, it was really hard for me to pick a favorite, but the reason I'm picking this one is because I'm actually referring to it a lot in my current work. And the episode is just dense with insights, and I was particularly inspired by the discussion on adaptive expertise, but also loved how we veered off to talk about the emotional response that may occur when you ask someone to reskill or upskill. These are real stressors that occur in those moments, such as the fear of change, self-doubt, and even worries about what this change may do, especially if you have a family to care for. I just found this entire discussion fascinating and hope you do as well. So sit back and enjoy our chat with Tessa and take it away, Bob. You know, we love learning and we love science and we also love Star Wars, but we're going to talk about all three, but mostly we're going to talk about science and learning with Tessa Forshaw from the Next Level Lab at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. She is an expert. We're excited to learn from her on this episode of the Learning Geeks podcast, starting now. Hello, hello, hello. Gentlemen, Tessa, welcome. Hi. Hi, we're super glad you're here. How is everybody today? It's Friday. It's great. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Friday, Friday. It is a Friday afternoon. It has been a long week for all of us, yes. I think. So that means four long weeks if we had everybody's <laughs> together. Yeah. And it was it was a crazy week. We had the the finale of the Book of Boba Fett, which yes. we were a little I'm not sure about. But we're not going to – we could spend a whole probably two hours on that, but we shouldn't. We shouldn't do that. Um, we're just excited that the Obi Wan Kenobi show is starting May twenty fifth, so that's going to be exciting. Yes. Yeah, that's going to be exciting. Tessa, how into all of this nerdery are you? By the way, I hate to say it, but I sort of grew up in a Star Trek household. That's fine. No, that's household. fine. That's fine. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was a very clear divide in the community that I grew up in. <laughs> there has been, but you know. We're, we're we're nerds of all color. Like, I, the same debate goes on with video game consoles, right? I'm like, mm-hmm. yes. hey, I am a grown ass man <laughs> who has I, two of them. I have a I good job. I can own everything. I don't have to declare. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have to declare. But, but Star Wars and Star Trek. What's what's your favorite flavor of Star Trek? Um, I am a Captain Janeway fan just always loved enterprise i as since i was a little girl one of my favorite memories is um there's an episode where um they're come back to earth obviously very far in the future and they're trying to save the whale and marine population yeah and um that actually made me want to be a uh, marine biologist for a good couple of decades wow Um, until I sort of got to college and started realizing that marine biology meant cutting open a lot of sea, like sea life in a lab. <laughs> I just yeah, not your tell. cup of tea. <laughs> <laughs> and from yeah. there, you decided to get into learning. They don't show yes. that part on, uh, on, on TV at all. No, like, oh, no. Open fish. no, no. No, they showed the swimming with dolphins a lot. <laughs> <laughs> 
So let's get into uh, the, the real topic at hand. Tessa, tell us a little bit more about yourself and the lab and your background. Just want to hear more about you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'm a, a doctoral candidate at the Harvard Graduate School of Arts and Science. And um, uh, last year, Professor Christidi and um, Dr. Tina Grotzer, uh, who are both on the faculty at the Harvard Graduate School of Education, and I started um, a lab that's uh, known as the Next Level Lab. And really the point of the lab um, was to bring I suppose learning sciences to life in a much more formalized way on the Harvard campus um, and with the specific application uh, to workforce development and workforce career readiness um, uh, and uh, and I suppose with a soft focus on on what it means to do that with uh, with emerging learning technologies. So what what are some of the focus areas that you you tend to gravitate towards in terms of learning sciences? It's a great question. So I think um, the lab sort of has five main areas that we focus on um, and we came to them by uh, mining a lot of the existing research and really trying to uncover what do we think are some of the uh, powerful ideas for next level learning in workforce development. Um, so some of the, the key theories that we draw upon are uh, our agency, so um, uh, Bandura's, Bandura's agency, um, but really the idea that um, humans must be able to be agentive in their learning and, and actively adjust the environment around them to support their growth and performance um, on a job. Uh, the second main area being dispositions, so uh, looking at the dispositions of how uh, skills come in to be enacted um, in, a, in uncertain and dynamically changing um, uh, contexts. Uh, adaptive expertise, and this is really testing my memory, <laughs> adaptive expertise. <laughs> so really looking at like tendencies of adaptive experts and how do we support um, uh, the coming generation of workforce development to uh, really focus on um, uh, creating not only deep experts, but experts that um, uh, have uh, can, can apply dynamically to different, cons, uh, different settings and different contexts. We look at transfer. So how do we transfer knowledge that's uh, learned in one learning environment or one performance environment to, to another, um, especially with this idea of expansively framing it? Uh, and finally, intelligence augmentation. So really looking at um, uh, what does it mean to uh, build and have skills that um, can augment artificial intelligence um, in a positive way, um, particularly with a focus on sort of what we call judgment versus reckoning skills. Well, I'm amazed that you remembered all that because I'm still trying to process everything you just said. Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking that, you know, her uh, prefrontal cortex and her hippocampus were just going active at retrieving all that good data. Well, it's chunked, and so yeah. I've automatized it pretty well. <laughs> and you've probably explained those things before, so you, yeah. you've had effective practice and it was space practice over time, right? Exactly. A question in your research uh, in these areas, What's the one or two most interesting things or surprising things that have come across your uh, your view? I think if you asked different people in the lab, everyone would have a, a different yeah. response to that. Yeah. Um, but for me, the thing that I think is um, most interesting is a hypothesis that we're really looking at we're in the middle of sort of mobilizing to test. So this isn't necessarily um, at real science yet. Um, but what we're interested in is if, 
if reskilling is always the right thing to do, um, or if what we need to be doing is better supporting learners to um, uh, cue and analogically reason skills learned in one uh, performance environment or learning environment and apply them in another um, and sort of then help solidify that process of transfer in a situated learning environment. So essentially suggesting that this very deficit-based approach of like, oh, all of these truck drivers need to learn to code or all of these um, uh, assembly um, line workers in Janesville, Wisconsin need to become um, uh, prison guards or electrical pole installers um, is, a, is not necessarily a great frame and instead how can we take an asset-based approach and support the queuing of knowledge and learning that already exists across contexts. Very interesting. Very interesting. Well, another question. Um, when you talked about the adaptive expertise, uh, sometimes we talk about adjacency skills. Is there a relationship that exists between those two or is that just something I'm making up in my head? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, so when we talk about adaptive expertise, um, we, t we really talk about um, uh, people who have a strong ability to go from abstract to concrete or concrete to abstract and that again and apply knowledge flexibly. Um, Dave Perkins, who used to run Project Zero and, and founded it, um, he talks about flexpertise in that kind of context. And so I think skills adjacency is, um, is important, although sometimes if a skill is too adjacent, it can trigger we've automatized it and can trigger us to execute the wrong component of the adjacent skill. Um, uh, so flex, flexpertise is really about, or adaptive expertise is about um, being able to uh, sort of see things from one uh, context and environment um, uh, and apply that knowledge flexibly in a new context. So some of the best examples that I've heard are like, um, uh, sushi, I think there's a, I'm just trying to remember who the academic is, I'm sorry, it skipped my mind, but uh, the knowledge and performance of sushi making. And so um, a chef can um, uh, apply knowledge that they've learned in like a basic kitchen skills and apply it to sushi making, um, even though they've sort of never ever encountered any of the like recipes or instructions or um, anything like that. So using what you have and applying it to something outside of your immediate domain is what I'm getting at. So then that kind of loops back to what you were saying about reskilling, right? Like instead of turning truck drivers into coders, you would let truck drivers build on what they knew though and then like do what? Like what would be a good example of, of how they would use adaptive skilling there? Yeah, so I mean, that's it. They're sort of like they're a little bit two sides of the same coin, but they are slightly different. So, in one context, um, uh, I think that transfer is really about um, I have built a, uh, a so, in the case of um, one of my favorite examples of this is, uh, is like um, quality assurance testing, for example. Um, so Quality assurance testing, you know, there's a clear skill set that's associated with that. Um, and if if we put them uh, quality assurance testers, largely those jobs are being automated because machines are getting good at quality assurance testing. Um, but uh, 
you know, uh, smart manufacturing and EV manufacturing requires a lot of manual QA testing. And so the skill set of like problem solving of how you go about, um, uh, you know, understanding something, debugging it, thinking through how to fix it, um, reporting that there's an error, logging it, um, uh, coming back and testing it again and you know, focusing in where the error was, all of the sorts of things associated with following tickets and orders and status reporting um, can be pretty easily transferred to, um, to an EV uh, manufacturing line. But the context is really, really different, right? Like one's an office yeah. and the other one is an EV manufacturing line. You know, I've been to the Tesla factory and it looks a lot like every other factory, much more like a factory than an office. And so they're not necessarily cued to transfer that knowledge forward because as we know, knowledge is deeply situated. So part of being an adaptive expert is also about you know, looking for that, like knowing that you have knowledge and yeah. abilities that can be flexibly applied and that things can be sort of deconstructed and reconstructed and you can rapidly test hypotheses of, oh, does this way of problem solving that I did there work here? So, so yeah, they're sort of two sides of the same coin is how I would put so that. So is part of your work then to try to figure out how to train people or think about helping people recognize that they have adaptive expertise because i would imagine that some people could have that but not know that that's mm -hmm. some inner you know superpower that they could tap yeah absolutely so tina great her um uh project that she's working on in the lab is definitely about that sort of um, transfer adaptive expertise and how do we support workforce development educators to enhance existing curriculums, not put new ones in there, um, but that helps support um, uh, uh, help support the skill development uh, of adaptive expertise and, and transfer and, and help learners sort of understand to have the sensitivity and the inclination to when those things can and can't apply. Um, I'm also looking at it from a, from a different perspective. I'm interested in some of the pedagogical practices that Q transfer. So for example, one thing that I find fascinating is you go to a workforce development program for um, a coding bootcamp in America and nearly every alumni that they roll out in front of the students will be someone who's a software engineer. But most of their students don't become software engineers and then they think that the program wasn't that useful but there are a lot of graduates who you know went on to run a fitness studio and they got business because they built a really cool website and they built an app that helps their members with training and they use their software engineering skills in sort of expansive ways that are not as straight and narrow as i've become a software engineer yeah and so I'm interested in if we expansively frame when the skills are being learned without even explicitly saying it, um, without explicitly saying nothing, you know, all your skills can go somewhere else, but instead sort of show it, um, what impact does that have on how they're encoded and therefore how they're retrieved in, in future contexts? One thing that when you were mentioning reskilling and plus, you know, all these other topics, especially like the, I, I was thinking automate, like anything that can be automized. When, when you hear that automation, it can be scary, especially for someone like, you know, you mentioned the truck driver or anybody else, right? Any type of role where their specific job may be prone to uh, automation. Are those, what are the types of techniques that you can get from something that's less scary to then help them figure out, yes, I could figure out things that I do know now that I can start to transfer 
or I can have, you know, come in, you know, have, understand what is agency. I'm, I'm almost thinking it is emotional impact that you have yeah. when times these things can be super scary when you say reskilling. It seems like all the work that I did is gone, right? And, and I'm wondering how is the lab and what have you learned about that side, that emotional impact to help people understand that it's not as scary as what it may seem? It's such a good question because I think so many people um, don't necessarily understand that, you know, that if your, your brainstorm and your thalamus are not prioritizing learning right now because they're going through an amygdala hijack yeah. because there's all this fear rushing mm -hmm. through your body yeah. about the fact that you don't have access to food, that you don't have access to, you know, you might lose your job, none of your skills are relevant, you, your you know, spouse has COVID and you're caring for them at that minute, like whatever the reason is, you can't actually, right, engage in learning effectively or meaningfully. And so in, in workforce development, this is a really big problem because we have tens of thousands of participants sitting across the country who are in really acute states of the amygdala hijack. Um, and, and yet we're teaching them like they're supposed to be able to recall didactic knowledge in a classroom. Like it's a, it's kind of very obscure. So to that end, I think um, it's really important that um, uh, when we think about reskilling, especially in a, in a workforce development context, we make space first to deal with um, uh, the mental health support that's necessary. And that's making wraparound service provision um, becoming increasingly important in workforce development. So, um, in fact, I also work with the um, Harvard Project on Workforce is the sort of other main lab that I work with at Harvard. And uh, in some research that we recently published, we found that less than 10% of workforce development organizations provided any kind of wraparound service, which is remarkable when you think about what we just said. Can you break that down, the wraparound service? So you, you mentioned the mental space. Like, what does that look like in practice? Yeah, so that can mean, and actually, I think um, uh, there are a few good examples of it out there, but um, that can mean, wraparound services can mean anything from, you know, it, it might mean addressing food um, insecurity right then and there. So a good example of wraparound service is the free lunch programs in schools in America. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, another example of a wraparound service could be access to um, shelter, could be access to a financial advisor um, or financial counsellor. It could be access to support payments or childcare, anything that addresses um, these sort of basic needs that need to be met before you can yeah. reasonably expect an adult to engage um, in meaningful learning experience. Yeah, we learned a lot about that when we were experimenting with immersion and measuring uh, how immersed people were in learning experiences. And, you know, one of the outcomes of that was uh, we kind of made the mantra that Maslow's hierarchy always wins. And, mm. you know, to, to put it in simpler terms, like, you know, you, you can't really spend time reflecting about your future career if you're hungry for lunch and you need to go to the bathroom. <laughs> it's yeah. So, you know, I mean, that, that's. <laughs> Speak it in plain English, Bob. Exactly. I'm my best. <laughs> but we learned that. And, you know, it's really true. And, and Tessa, I think you're, you're making that whole idea a little bit more uh, elegant and diplomatic, but it is still the same principle. And I was going to say, we've been doing we've been doing a lot with uh, with well, I'm sure a lot of corporations have, but a lot more with wellness. And I think it's to address 
some of the things you're talking about with all the pandemic situations, people working from home and having kids and dogs to tend to when they're trying to do their work. I think that amygdala hijack is something that just happens more prevalently than uh, than yeah. perhaps it has in the past. In addition to wellness programs, what other types of wraparound um, interventions or services would work in the corporate world? Yeah, it's a really good question. So I think sometimes, um, uh, so uh, sometimes it's about uh, like instructional moves that sort of intentionally call attention to what's going on and deal with it. And so Tina, um, uh, my colleague, her work, uh, one of the things they've been doing is designing in a move uh, what they call a move that is, um, so you've got an amygdala hijack, like, how do you deal with this? And, um, and, and also, uh, I think a really big part of that is this idea of, um, is that it's really important in the learning experience, but it's also something that you're going to experience uh, in the new performance context a lot, especially mm -hmm. early on. And so how do you learn to notice notice that you're being triggered and what are the steps that you can take to sort of minimize or pass through it? And so that one of the main steps is stop trying to learn at that moment and focus on self-regulation, focus on you know, breathing, on moving, on walking, and make learning experiences that allow, like from, from an instructional perspective, make learning experiences that allow learners, especially when they're adults, to tap out when they need to have to, you know, when they have to deal with that um, versus forcing them to sit there and sit through it. We have this obsession with, you know, scheduled completion for some reason, I think, <laughs> that... <laughs> just isn't really very helpful. Yeah. Well, so many of these principles that you're talking about that we need to rethink are baked right into our primary and secondary school system, right? So it, it does make you wonder what, what effect we would have on younger kids when they have those amygdala hijack move uh, moments if we could just train them up on how to recognize them and give them a little bit of grace to work it through. That's an interesting question, Bob, and, and Tessa, you might have some background or insight on this. Does How early does amygdala hijack start taking place? Is that something that, like, from infancy, you start to have those things? I, I know that a child knows if they're falling that that's it has some impact, but, I mean, is that is that amygdala hijack something that matures with us, or how does that how does that work? It's a really good question. I think um, uh, I don't know the full answer, but I do know that the tantrum is a amygdala hijack. Oh, interesting. Um, so that's what you're seeing. I actually have a nearly two-year-old, um, and one thing that I find really helpful is having a bit of a learning sciences background <sighs> because when she is having a tantrum, is using for me using scientific words so that I don't get triggered by it and, also <laughs> have an and then the dog wonder why it's, wonders why it got kicked right yeah. <laughs> so tessa back to that point though like going back to even the higher ed space what are they doing in terms of creating those spaces i think of the same thing and it's it's very time there's a lot of time-based stuff you know you go to class you go you have, you have scheduled so very scheduled based how are they um, creating those moments and those opportunities for people to, again, they still have problems, there's still issues and there's still challenges that are going on. How do you still allow people to get in that mindset? Or is that even happening? Or is that something that we're, you know, you're still working on as part of the lab? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's obviously going to be so many examples that I don't know about. Um, and, and higher ed isn't, um, uh, isn't a place that I, you know, even though I'm based at Harvard, it's not something that I know a whole lot um, um, uh, about. But uh, one really good example, and actually that program with um, uh, uh, Goodwill, um, and it's a virtual reality experience um, that is uh, for um, formerly justice involved individuals. Um, and it, one of the reasons it's being designed is specifically to sort of avoid this amygdala hijack to, or create a safe space for triggers to happen. So um, what it is, is it's an experience called Project Overcome where um, uh, it's a full submersion experience and they get to practice talking about um, their uh, history of justice involvement or incarceration um, with a uh, uh, with a virtual, I suppose, career coach or um, uh, job um, uh, hiring manager. And so, what's really cool about that is that you know there's very little to trigger you in that context. It's a very safe space, like, and you get to make a mistake and what the virtual the virtual reality person is going to get mad at you no you're going to lose the job blow the job opportunity no like the the stakes are really low and so i think that that's been that's a really clever design of how do you create something that how do you use emerging technology in a learning construct to um eliminate a lot of the triggers and a lot of the things that would otherwise make this experience a very um, heightened sort of threat perceiving experience and, and reduce the friction. Can you elaborate a little bit more on a couple of the other ones we haven't talked about on agency and disposition? Just a, a little bit more on defining what those are and some of the impacts? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, agency is, I think, a really important um, uh, a really important component that we don't talk enough about in um, in the context of learning, but especially in the context of learning for work, because um, the way that we describe it is that for a learner to be agentive, um, they need to be in an environment that they can actively adjust um, to support the growth their growth and performance. So uh, a good example um, that are often uses in our lab is this idea of like a fast fish that can manipulate the vortexes around it um, uh, to move through the, the ocean. So it can manipulate the environment to be able to do what it needs to do. It is agentive in that way. Um, but what is, I think, often missed in this notion is that the environment has in this context is water and it can be manipulated so you the environment has to enable the agency um, and a lot of environments a lot of learning environments don't enable agency and a lot of work environments and and managers and contexts don't invite don't enable agency um, so we talk a lot about how do we think about the features and the characteristics of environments that um, that enable agency and, and um, what does it mean to have a really agentic person in a context that doesn't let them express that and what does that do versus somebody who isn't but is in an environment that lets them express that and how are their outcomes different. 
Um, it's a definitely an emerging idea, but it's it's one of the sort of five areas of focus on the radar. Wow. So Dana and I are going to come right to you for that because we need it for a project we're working on right now. So it's very exciting. I was going to say in, their pre, in our previous episode, which, you know, we did talk about learner agency. So that was kind of fun. There was a good connection. It's also helped me validate that, like, what we can't, what we did as part of that research was, was valid. It's always great hearing from Tesla because I think now this is like my second time in a matter of a year where I've been validated by something Tesla has said. So I felt pretty good. <laughs> I'm, doing, I'm on the right path. So <laughs> yeah, just give me a call, Jake, and be like, I need, I need validation. Easing the amygdalas all over. Yeah, yeah I was going to say, I'll, I'll give you a call when my amygdala is in the process of being hijacked. <laughs> <laughs> so how about disposition? Yeah, so dispositions is, I think, so Chris Deedy, uh, who is also my doctoral advisor, he really focuses on on this idea of um, 21st century dispositions. And he um, he really started to talk about the idea in his book that he wrote, um, The 60-Year Curriculum, which I, I really like. And um, dispositions, uh, the idea here is that you have um, uh, skills and abilities and really dispositions are about how you manifest them into existence. Um, so in that way, dispositions can be things like uh, growth mindset, resilience, grit, uh, creativity. Um, uh, uh, I think um, when he and I having a recent conversation, um, I think sort of a sense of justice or ethics came up mm -hmm. as as a, a recent addition to that list. Um, but really, what there are obviously hundreds of different types of dispositions. But what the lab is is trying to understand is what are the key dispositions that are necessary for a dynamic and uncertain future. Um, so in a world the future of work or a today <laughs> pandemic. Um, what does it mean to um, have dispositions that make you more successful? Mm -hmm. So I think an example there would be, you know, um, growth mindset, which I also think is is just a, a lovely version of, of self-efficacy. Um, but uh, that's what really we mean by dispositions. And he's um, doing some interesting work uh, with um, Goodwill North Carolina, I think it is. And they're looking at, again, not creating new material, but how do they just enhance the curriculums and the instructional design moves that they use currently to, you know, infuse a pedagogical practice that allows for these dispositions to manifest in the classroom because you know one of the things we know about um, uh, these sorts of, sort of dispositional type um, skills and abilities so to speak is that they you can't teach them by putting up a slide of growth mindset <laughs> you have to yeah. um, enable a sort of an experience where they can be enacted a mental model can be named that hey what that just was that was this how did that feel how did you get there and really support their development through pedagogy and instructional design versus through content well i feel like we could go on for hours but the clock on the studio wall which, by the way, I bring up on every episode. And, you know, true confessions, there's a little clock at the bottom of the screen that I'm looking at. <laughs> sounds better but to say it's the clock of the studio wall. Sometimes the wall is your computer screen. So. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> regardless, it says it's time to it's a time to go. So, Tessa, it has been absolutely a delight to have you. I think uh, I've learned a lot, like we just said, that I could apply. Uh also, thank you for reminding me I'm two episodes behind in Star Trek Discovery that I need to catch up on, hopefully, this weekend. <laughs> um, let me just ask you what, what, one maybe quick parting shot, parting thought is with the research that you've done and knowing kind of what happens in corporate education out there. 
So basically, you know, our listeners, what's one thing that you would recommend that they start doing differently or rethink or, you know, hey, you're doing this wrong. Don't do it this way anymore. I totally put you on the spot with that. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's fine. Um, I am really fascinated. So with transfer, as everybody on this call knows, I have no doubt a podcast knows that um, uh, you build knowledge on top of prior knowledge, Mm -hmm. right? And yet sometimes we don't, more often than not, we don't actually elicit that prior knowledge into the learning environment. And so if there was sort of one thing that has really come up from our work, that is that um, simple act instructional design moves and activities at the beginning and end of more formalized learning experiences or even intermittently throughout learning experiences that say intentionally like, hey, what knowledge do you already have about this topic that you could bring in? Or that say, hey, what are the 10 different ways that you think you could use this or you could see this being applied in the world actually just helps that, you know, process of bringing the knowledge in and then helps that process of encoding so that it can be recalled when you're in any of those future contexts. Um, And I think we forget that the point of learning is transfer, right? I mean, if you don't transfer it, like, (laughs) then it was just why are we wasting our time exactly (laughs) yeah we've been we've been saying that i've been thinking that a lot lately you know learning for learning's sake is a very noble pursuit but uh at the end of the day it doesn't make a lot of money so (laughs) got to do it tessa thank you again for being here thanks great to to have you thanks for having me and thank you to all of our listeners so on behalf of tessa and jake and dana this is bob saying Come back and see us again on the next episode of Learning Geeks Podcast, which will be real soon. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, all. Thank you, everybody.